Radio Vermont, WDEV, takes no responsibility for the opinions or statements made by the House Calls Vermont show host or their guests. The information provided during the House Calls Vermont show is offered only as a public service and should not be used as a substitute for obtaining any professional advice from a licensed professional. WDEV presents House Calls Vermont with host Jim Bradley and Chris West. Each week, a new topic specific to building or renovating in the Green Mountains and your telephone calls. Brought to you today by R.K. Miles, a third-generation family-owned business, proud to be your local building material supplier. Find a location near you at rkmiles.com. By Poly Construction, for over 30 years known for anything construction, big or small jobs, one call does it all. P-O-L-L-I Construction.com. By Ken Libby of the Stowe Area Realty Group at Keller Williams Stowe, your trusted advisor, 802-793-2002. And by Curtis Lumber. With two locations in Vermont, Williston and Burlington. Request a quote for your next project online at curtislumber.com. By Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. With locations in St. Albans, Enosburg, Swanton, Derby and Middlesex. By Shamrock Painting. Painting and custom wood finishing. Shamrockpainting.com. By Wytha Windows. High performance passive house windows and doors. Online at W-Y-T-H-E windows.com and by Matt Clark's Northern Basement Systems for all things basementy northern N-E foundations.com Your participation is encouraged. You can call the listener line with your questions at 802-244-1777 and right now House Calls Vermont with Jim and Chris. Good afternoon. This is Chris West from House Calls Vermont. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Jim Bradley. Jim Bradley, yes, and for the last time this season. For this season, season, that's right. This is our last show. I want to start off the show just very, very humbly thanking Joel Nashman for all of his his good work over the the last season. Uh, yes. He is a a tireless and super helpful and amazing assistant and help with this, doing all the technical stuff, answering the phones, making sure that we're on track, that we don't run over, and if we have to run over because it's his show afterwards, he always gives us a couple of minutes, so extra minutes. So thank you so much, Joel. We're, we're always indebted to your your hard work. Um, and uh, wow, what weather! Uh, I've been talking to some friends who uh, who buy that late season pass at Smugs, right? They're like, okay, um, there's this rule. I don't know if you guys know this, but if you if you have a, a season pass at Smugs, if you buy it at a certain point. Um, before December, I think it's like 21st or something, you ski free, and then after March 2nd or so, you ski free. And some years, that really works out. Like last year, we had decent snow on the ground until around this time, but this year, it got super warm super early. So, um, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of hit or miss whether or not the stock market goes up or down, whether or not there's snow on the mountain or not. Um, that's a, 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 a just a, a crapshoot there, and this year, we kind of uh, crapped out. Um, but 
But um, I, I, one of the things I, I want to talk about, you know, my project at Ten Old Stage, and if you guys are driving through Essex, uh, Vermont, um, I've you, been. Wait a second, you're going to tell them where this is? <laughs> I didn't tell them address, um, uh, but yeah, I, I guess I did. Um, uh, you're welcome to stop by, by the way. Uh, no, no heckling, please. This is where Jim and I have that tiny house where, where, that we're going to start renovating once we both have enough time to actually get to it. Yes. Um, and we'll be making video ab- about that. Um, but I'm finally at the point where I'm ordering uh, siding for for the brick part of the building. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, but this is a, a, a brick farmhouse from the 1830s. I have the, the historian, the town historians uh, committee looked at it and said it was probably the 1839, 1840 uh, point. And the reason they were able to discern that <clears throat> is because the house has a mixture of rough sawn and hand-hewn pieces. And it was in that, that time that the mills were built down on the Winooski Falls, down there at the, at the bottom of, uh, not Winooski, um, uh, the uh, Essex Falls, down there over by uh, the Amway. Um, so he was able to place it about then, so it's right on the cusp of having easily available rough sawn wood. Um, and I've got this brick building, but I want to insulate it because I don't want to just be throwing a BT to use at it and, and wasting energy. And the brick was is uh, old brick, and the mortar is lime mortar. And if you insulate the inside of a building like that, what you're doing is you're moving the, the freezing point into the brick, and it creates a condition we call spalling. And we've all seen it when you go to a house and you see the brick, and the brick has kind of broken away, but the Chip. mortar is still yep. there sometimes. Um, that is called spalling. And it, it's, it's just that the, the moisture that's in the brick, and moisture moves in and out of brick. You can't keep moisture out, out of brick, and you shouldn't. Um, but you're moving by insulating the inside, you're moving that dew point, the, the freezing point, sorry, inside the first eighth of an inch, quarter inch of that brick, and then that freezes and breaks it off. Because we know that, that one of the powerful forces in nature is the fact that ice expands when it freezes, and, and that's just a very important part of how uh, we get sand from rocks, right? I mean, just the, the, the erosion process. It's one of the, the main parts of the erosion process. So I decided to insulate the outside of the brick, and now I'm double strapping, ver- vertical strapping for venting and horizontal strapping to take this shiplap that I'm buying. So I bought uh, t- this week. I ordered my shiplap from uh, a local lumberyard, and I'm very, very happy to be able to buy local l- lumber, sawn at a local sawmill, and keep that money in our local economy. And then I was here at the show over the last season, and we got this great sponsor co- by the name of Shamrock Painting. They're out of North. Vermont, and I was like, "Well, I could set up some sawhorses in a, a barn, and I could paint this myself. Uh, what would it cost to have Shamrock do this, and what is their service?" And I've been like chatting with Jim about this for the past season, kind of like, "Yeah, they're they're offering if you drop the 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 uh, siding off, you know, the the plain wood siding off at their their place in Northfield, they will." prime it, paint it, and drop it off at your site. And I was like, well, that's got to be prohibitively expensive, just thinking about it. But actually, after doing the math, the labor and the shipping and the cost of the paint that I wanted to put on, it's really a very reasonable...
reasonable price. So in the end, I'm having, I'm paying my, my, the lumber yard where I'm buying the lumber to ship it over to Northfield. They're going to take about a week, two weeks to actually get it painted in the color that I want, both back painted, right? This is a, a wood, uh, a siding and Jim is always very, very, uh, vociferous about <laughs> the dangers of not painting both sides of wood siding. And, and, and we'll chat about that in a minute. But after, uh, everything is said and done, I'm going to save myself a lot of labor and, <clears throat> pardon me, and I'm going to get a great product. So if you are, uh, you know, going to be painting, uh, some, some wood, uh, siding and you want to have that wood siding put up on, uh, uh, just have it done for you, give, uh, uh, Dennis, uh, Donahue over at, um, Shamrock. Shamrock Paint a call and get a quote and just see what it is. Because I, I mean, I haven't gotten it done yet, but it sounds like a great service and the price point is great. Oh, I was impressed by it because, uh, we, from some of our local suppliers, they have to send it out, some of the siding that we purchase, they buy it directly from the manufacturer, whether it's a composite material, or wood material, and they can send it out to another company that's out of state and get a nice finish on it. But by the time you get it back, it's been running about $2 a linear foot yeah. um, for that to be painted both sides, two coats, and ready to put up. But what Chris told me it was definitely under the $2 mark, and it was a local supplier. So I thought... I gotta explore them the next time. I need some siding painted. So I will, I will clarify. This is, this is, uh, one coat both sides, mm-hmm. and they recommend you do a second coat after it's in place. And that's what people don't realize. Yep. When they get pre-finished product, whether it's white, whether it's a dark color, if you're not, if you're not putting that up with jersey style cotton gloves, you are gonna get so <laughs> many handprints, and when you take a cement board product or a composite material yeah. and cutting it with the saw, you're gonna get that material all over the side, and you're gonna look back when you're done and say, I've gotta pressure wash the building. Yeah, and you really do because that it, rain's going to take some of it off, but it's not going to look brand new unless you do something like that. So this whole back priming thing is about the the, the nature of the type of wood that we have, right? Um, how they saw it how the growth rings are sitting in that piece of wood mm-hmm. and what happens if that gets moist again after it's been dried. So when, I mean, I have a sawmill at home and I worked on a, a, a Dutch sawmill in the Netherlands. Um, so there are a couple different ways to saw a piece of wood and where the growth rings sit in that piece of wood affect how it will act yes. when it's drying after it's planed and if it gets wet again. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, uh, the best way to cut a piece of wood is what's called quarter saw. Which is where they cut a, 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 a trunk into quarters and then they saw back and forth on the flat side to get the uh, the growth rings perpendicular yep. to the surface, right? And that way, when it dries, it doesn't cup, it doesn't change shape because very the, stable, very very stable, even if it gets wet. However, it's very expensive. Yes. To do that, and you don't get the same size wood. As you're cutting down that, mm-hmm. it gets smaller and smaller, so you're getting different dimensions. So most of the wood is called, is, is cut in a way that's called plain saw, which is where you just put the, the, the tree on and you saw it down going, sawing down. And that means that the growth rings are either perpendicular, sometimes you have, even have an, an entire rainbow in that piece of wood. When that gets wet, it's gonna cup in the direction of the tree, right? So if you have a growth ring that's, you see a little rainbow, it will cup in the direction of that growth ring. Well, if it's perpendicular, that's great, but if it isn't, then you have a problem. So when we go to a house that has natural siding on, wood siding on it, and the, the, uh, Siding is in horrible shape. It's degraded. It's cupping. It's doing all of that. Jim's like, oh, that wasn't back, 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 back primed. Prime. And yeah. he's absolutely right. So 
Tell us a little and, about and that, the vapor profile. And, and, and well, also the, the, the force that can happen in when a piece of siding starts to cup. If you, even if you nailed it in place, it can pull those nails right out yeah. or pull itself away from the nails. Pull through the head. Yeah, right through yeah. it. And then what you, what happens is that siding, which is supposed to be a weather barrier, then becomes a funnel to help water get into your house assembly. And then that gets your sheathing wet, promotes rot, mold growth, other things, and yep. then it starts to get, to get your fibrous insulation wet, and so then once that happens, the conductive value drops, this, the, the insulation compresses. Yes, it may dry out later, but then it's probably going to re-wet, yep. and it's just not going to have the same effective insulation value. So really, getting that barrier correct, making sure it's stable. You know, one thing you may see, too, um, on some of the siding is if you have a bad vapor profile, you can see some of that moisture trying to push out of siding, and just like Chris was at, uh, commenting about how brick will sprawl, um, due to frost and everything else, trying to get out of the wall assembly, you get a similar situation when moisture is trapped inside a wall assembly. It's trying to get out, and it pushes that paint right off the siding. I know, I've seen some people who have a new house, and in the last four years, they've painted the siding almost every year because it keeps yeah. having a problem. But what is that's the canary in the coal mine. It's indicating there's a that problem. That doesn't mean paint again. No, no. It means find out what's happening. Why is that vapor driving out? Where's that vapor coming from? You know, because it's doing its thing. What, what do we always say now? Um, you know, building science is not going to respect your best intentions or your ignorance or how much money you spend. Yep. It, you've got to get the science right. And if you get the science right, your building's going to perform well. One one thing we have a little later in the show is Guy Payne from Sion, which is um, the Sustainable Energy Outwork Network in Bennington, Vermont, where uh, they Bradboro. train... Oh, I'm sorry, Brattleboro. Another B. Another B in, in southern Vermont, too. <laughs> southern but um, they, they basically promote proper building science and construction melded together for a cohesive relationship. And that's what we have to respect. And, you know, build it right. But get the science right. That's just as important as how you you hammer that nail yep. and how you put up put in that window is how you make sure that the house performs. So today is our last episode for the season, and we we're first of all thank you so much for being uh, our our loyal listeners. Uh, we do have the lines open eight zero two two four four one seven 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 if you want to call in with a question um, or if you just want to say hey we uh, give us a, a bit of feedback on the show we'd love to hear that as well. A bit of heckling uh, maybe. Uh, uh, we're, we got tough skins here. Um, and we're also going to be discussing the results from the indoor air quality survey that we did. Yes. Um, we're right up against the break. When we come back, we're, we'll uh, start talking about the indoor air quality survey. Yes. And then later in the show, we'll have uh, Guy Payne, uh, and we'll talk about education for builders and building science. Uh, so uh, stick with us, and we'll talk to you after the break. Christmas Eve Then and Now by Wythe Windows. Christmas Eve then. And Mama and her kerchief and I and my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. Tighten up that kerchief. It's going to be a cold one. It's that nasty draft from the window that's to blame. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. Hurry, I think I see something. It's stuck. And Christmas Eve now. Look, it's Santa. What a clear, unobstructed view we get through our white windows. Quick, tilt it open. Hey, Santa, it's Jim. Those are some good-looking white tilt-and-turn windows. I know. Eight locking points keep them air and watertight, and they're made in New Jersey. That's my next stop. I have a new guitar for the boss. I heard him exclaim, and he drove out of sight. Wife windows for all, for a house cozy and tight. Wife windows, high-performance passive house windows and doors. Online at wythewindows.com. 
Welcome back, everybody. It's Jim Bradley and Chris West. Hey, with, guys. With House Calls Vermont, our final show of the season. We uh, welcome all of our listeners, new ones, returning ones. Um, and, you know, the, one of the things that uh, has always amazed me while we've done the course of the show is that we have never had um, a, a lack of proper examples. <laughs> yeah, good, to, good reasons as to why we know what we're doing is the right thing e- to be doing. Exactly. Yeah. So, point in case, this, this week, um, we had planned for months to make this the indoor air quality show basically our last show of the season. And just yesterday, we had two different projects that were from a previous listener, contractor who, who's here, heard the show and he used our, utilized our services last year, but he had two more problem houses in different areas of, of the, uh, the area or different areas of the state, and he said, "Can you come take a look at these for us?" One was a different type of setting. It was a uh, basically it's a, a house that was built about ten or twelve years ago on the lake. Um, it had a small crawl space where eventually they ended up retrofitting the crawl space because when they originally built it, they didn't put any kind of vapor membrane or, or control later in the in the bottom of the crawl space. So they thought, "Well, let's improve this." So they put a, a nice thick membrane down down below the house. They wrapped it up on the sidewalls, and then they spray foamed the joy space and, and then uh, uh, sealed in place that membrane to the sidewall, which normally I would say that's a very reasonable attempt to get that vapor control that you need in the, in the crawl space and a bit of insulation. But they were the, the, they said the house was suffering from a lot of bad smells from that area, and they couldn't figure out why, and it was also affecting just the, the nauseousness of the individual. It was causing that and, and, and other um, health issues, and so they said, can you come take a look? Well, when we got into the house, it hadn't been lived in because it's a seasonal residence, and when we got in there, we found that as we got into the basement, also where you're hit in the face with this this overwhelming smell of kind of like a cat, cat urine, yeah. um, and then also a little bit of a fishy smell. And then I got down there with the flashlight, and I looked to the side, and I said, huh, two different colors of spray foam, but not in a good way. The one I've seen before where it looks like the mix was not right. And so I went up there, crawled in this little two-foot, three-foot area, crawled over to the side, Touched the insulation. It was immediately sticky in, in the darker colored, colored insulation, and it was crackly. And then when you look at your hands afterwards, they were shiny. And so you know that it wasn't a good mix. And the problem with the that – The two-part spray foam the, mix was wrong. Yes. Yeah. And, and the problem with that, it will never get good. You know, it's not going to just uh, get better over time. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, Actually, this was a, a 10-year-old – uh, application wasn't it? No, no, that was more. This this was a more recent application okay. that they did. Um, but certainly, I mean, spray foam should be cured and in its final state within a day maximum, and usually yes. within a couple of hours of being applied. And you shouldn't smell it anymore. And yeah. that was the problem. You just are hit in the face as soon as you get into this this crawl space. And as they're living in there, that is migrating upstairs, yeah. and so it's affecting the health and the safety of the building occupants. And the only way to get that right, we thought about possibly encapsulating it, but that's not necessarily an overall guarantee. So it may be that they have to extricate all this, remove it, remediate it, and then treat the area and then try it again with the proper insulation package. But, you know, that's that's just one thing. Then he asked us to go to another house. And well, we, just before we, de- sure. we get to that, um, also in that, that three-foot-tall crawl space, um, they had hired a company to come in and put down a membrane yep. and thought that the odor was coming because the membrane was not good and contiguous. Yes. Uh, went, uh, the the uh, contractor went down and looked and found 
found plenty of places where the membrane was not contiguous. Um, we were getting kind of a swampy smell because it's right on, on the beach, so the, the, the ground is very wet. Um, and that swampy smell was coming through some of these um, not well-detailed connections of this very good membrane. Um, and when he called the company to come back and fix it, they came back, said they fixed it, and he went down and inspected after because he wasn't able to be on site, and they still hadn't done all the places. Exactly. And they, they had used the same tape that had failed in the earlier attempt. So, once again... Expecting to di- get different results from the same application. And what if you've, if you've listened to us for any length of time, what if Chris and I have always said, you should not expect, but you should inspect to make sure things are done appropriately. People say, we don't need inspections. We don't need training and education in the state. Let us do what we want. This is another case where a homeowner paid really, really good money, expected great results, didn't have it properly inspected until there was a failure and a need to investigate further. And thus, this should have been one where it was caught first and foremost because any inspector worth their salt would have seen this wasn't a good mix and the tape joints weren't right. And so it should have been caught. The other one we went to was about a 14-year-old your old house it's about a million dollar home, yep, roughly. Yep. Um, had living spaces in the basement. Thirty seven hundred square feet, four thousand yeah, square feet. You know, uh, not a McMansion, but getting close. Yeah, in the, in the building occupants upstairs were complaining of nasal respiratory issues, and they just things didn't smell right. The previous tenants down below had a few issues as well. Uh, so there's, a, there's a there's a um, an in law apartment on the on the basement floor. Yes, uh, with a walkout basement in one side. And they decided to put carpet in some of the areas in the bedrooms directly on. Top, well, onto a foam pad, but a standard foam pad directly onto the concrete and then carpet over that. And that had been there since the house was new. Well, but remember, we've, we stated this before. When a house is brand new, about a 2,000-square-foot home, and this is almost double that, will give off 500 gallons of water in the first year just from the building materials, the concrete, the wood, the paints, everything else. It'll off-gas that into the airstream. And so if you do not have proper protection over a concrete slab, not only will that initial water in the drying process – allow moisture to move up. If you don't have a vapor barrier below the slab, that more moisture is going to come up, yep. and it's going to get into that carpet. It's going to make it smell. You're not going to get that smell to go away, and it can start to affect your health and safety because it promotes mold growth. And so their solution, our direction was, definitely if you're going to put a different flooring down there, you're going to have some type of vapor barrier, whether it's the product itself because it's a plasticized product that would act as a vapor barrier. Yeah, or like, like a linoleum-type material. Yeah, LVT yeah. Yeah, type of thing. Or you're going to put... If you're going to put wood floor, you need a better vapor control, vapor barrier down there yep. to make this go away. But I also told them you need to disinfect this area first, make sure it's clean, that odor goes away, and treat it appro- appropriately the next time. But they opted to have one of the indoor air quality sensors put in place. Yeah. So uh, we uh, uh, left uh, with this this customer an indoor air quality monitor, the IQ Air, which was part of which was the monitor they were using for the indoor air quality survey that we did, and. Uh, they're going to do what we said to do uh, otherwise uh, to the people who are using it in the survey, which is put it in one room for three days, yep. put it in another room for three days. Now, this apartment is not being lived in right now. So um, the moisture load that people create 
right? The breathing in and out of uh, between one and three liters of water a day with two people living in the house. So uh, would would change the the moisture profile and the available moisture in the air to condense on a cool surface. But it's going to be better than not having any monitoring. So we're going to check out what the temperatures are, what the the humidity humidity is, and other metrics like the the, the microfines, the the one picometer, the 2.5 picometer, and the 10 picometer. Meter. That's basically when you see smoke, those little bits that actually reflect the light that are smoke. Yes. That's the the PM two point five. Those those little pieces of of ash are two point five picometers wide, and that's dangerous because that can clog your lungs. The the alveoli, the very smallest uh, air sacs, uh, air sacs in your lungs get mm-hmm. clogged, and then have can't be used anymore. Uh, for for transferring oxygen and carbon dioxide to and from the body. So we asked them to put this monitor in, and we're, we'll get that, that device back in a couple of weeks, and we'll be able to monitor, uh, analyze it, just like we did with all of the, uh, the listeners. listeners that we had. So yeah. we had, in the end, uh, a, 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 a small sample. We knew it was going to be a small sample. We sure. have about uh, nine or ten good data sets that, that you all, uh, who participated, uh, uh, Got the indoor air quality monitor and and distributed it and put it in your house and and kept kept uh, uh, a log about it. Once again, if you have any questions about indoor air quality, about uh, comfort issues, about durability issues, keep a log. Keep that log should state the date. Um, what your uh, concerns are and the weather conditions or indoor conditions uh, or both so that we can you can take a look at it and go, oh, on that day, uh, it started off minus 15, but by midday it was 30 degrees and this was happening inside the house like we were gone for the weekend or, or whatever. So um, what is it that we found out from this indoor air quality survey? What are the takeaways? What are the takeaways? So the first thing, what what is being monitored? So the monitors were we're taking, keeping track of carbon dioxide, which is a very important one. Um, that is uh, one of the things that happens when we breathe in and out, when plants breathe in and out, um, and also can be a part of a combustion process, right? You get carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, and also what's called the NOxs, the nitrogen oxides, and the, so nitrogen oxide, nitrogen dioxide, and it's tracking those things, but it also tracks something, uh, a relative humidity. Yep. Right, and it tracks something called indoor air quality, which is basically hey, that's not sweaty, how sweaty your brother is. Relative humidity. So that's all I'm saying. Let's clear that not, up. Not in this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can come up with a syllogism that will get us there. Um, but um, so those are those are the five things that we are tracking. Um, and uh, I analyzed the data, yep. and what we found is about half of the houses involved actually have pretty good indoor air quality. That's surprising. They, they, we were, some of these uh, uh, houses were maxing out at about uh, 1,800 parts per million of carbon dioxide, which although higher than the 900, I mean double the 900 yeah. parts per million that the scientists have said um, begin to affect our cognition, 
right? As soon as you're above 900, you get into that 1,000 to 1,200, you're starting to have very small um, uh, negative effects on how you think. That explains everything for some, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on in here right now. But <laughs> it's a pretty small room, and maybe the maybe we're, we're not thinking very clearly. Open a window. Um, uh, but some of them were were showing on uh, certain occasions alarmingly high uh, readings on the carbon dioxide in the uh, 2,500, and one of them even topped out at 3,800 parts per million. Yes. Um, so uh, what's the danger there? So let's just be clear: carbon dioxide is not as dangerous is carbon monoxide, monoxide, right? Carbon dioxide is something that we produce, something that our plants produce, is something that cooking produces. But the way that you solve um, carbon dioxide poisoning is by stepping outside and getting fresh, fresh air. air. As soon as you get a couple of breaths of oxygen, you're going to be fine. Carbon monoxide, which is Different. a negative or, or a, a product of a not very good burning process, actually clogs that little uh, divot in your red blood cells. So uh, think about hemoglobin. It steals the seat. It steals the seat. A red blood cell is basically looks like a, a kind of an inner tube, right? And in the middle is where that uh, oxygen, the the the, the, the di- diploid, the O2 goes in, or the CO2 when it's transporting oxygen or, or carbon dioxide. However, when the oxygen and the carbon dioxide get to the end of their journey, they release that oxygen yep. or that carbon dioxide, and that red blood cell can be used again. Carbon, di- carbon monoxide actually goes into that inner tube and does not leave. That red blood cell is no longer usable for the life of that cell to transport oxygen. anything yeah. else, oxygen, yeah. carbon dioxide, sure. whatever. So you need a blood transfusion. When you get car- when you get carbon monoxide poisoning, so yes. so we're not tracking carbon monoxide in here. Um, and if you have, uh, uh, we all think uh, in the building science community that you should have carbon monoxide monitors in your house, aggressive ones too, not just your off the shelf type that that trigger at 32 parts per million sustained because you start getting effective negatively anything at nine parts per million and above and they don't start to trigger until you're 32 30, parts per right. million sustained and yet there are other ones on the market home depot sells them through their website and other places do too that are more sensitive and down to that range where we're talking about where it starts to become a health and safety concern a little bit more money but not much it used to be hundreds of dollars more yep. now it might be 10 to 15 dollars more well worth the investment because you want to know when if there's a sustained problem of 20 parts per million, yeah. your alarm, your other alarms aren't going to go off, but you're still being affected. Yeah. So, and over time, you're going to be clogging up those red blood cells yep. over and over and over and building up a, a lower oxygen capacity. Um, and that's something we want to avoid. Uh, one good thing to think about when you're looking at these carbon monoxide monitors is the ones that have the digital readouts are usually yes. the ones that go down below 30. So keep that in mind. Um, so uh, the other takeaway uh, was based on an analysis of the relative, the relative humidity, the indoor air quality mm-hmm. level, uh, the um, uh, temperature, sure. um, and those microfines, the PM2.5. And what we found, uh, interestingly enough, uh, is that the indoor air quality and the microfines track together. 
Yes. Right. So when you look at the the data and you see these curves going up and down, what you'll see is that the indoor air quality is usually about eight or ten times higher than the uh, the microfines. Um, and it's obvious that there's some kind of algorithm that says if the microfines are this, then your indoor air quality is that inside the monitor. Um, another interesting thing is as you're looking at this, you see these two lines that kind of mirror each other in a, in a negative way. Sure. And that is the temperature and the relative humidity. As as the temperature goes up, the relative humidity goes down. So uh, if you're keeping your house very warm, you're actually going to be reducing your, your the, 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 the propensity of your house to have high relative humidity. Of course, that depends on what your moisture sources are. Yes. If you have seven fish tanks or putting seven <laughs> gallons of water into your plants every day, um, there's no amount of, of uh, higher temperatures that's going to sure. reduce the relative humidity to a safe point in there. So the Main takeaway is out of the houses that we we monitored here, about half of them were fine, and half of them should actually look at some indoor air quality remediation by adding uh, either better exhaust ventilation or balanced ventilation. We've talked about uh, the uh, the Zender CA70 and the Lunos. These are uh, systems that are really designed for retrofits, where you don't yes. have to rip all your your walls out in order to put all the tubes in. You're just putting one hole in a wall and you're you're sliding that unit in. So um, that's what we'd recommend because uh, indoor air quality can be affected by diluting the the uh, the, the things that are going wrong, the high carbon dioxide, things of that sort. And the dilution is done through through ventilation. I guess, Chris, I was going to ask you, were there any of these that ended up being one of those, uh, you contact the client immediately and say, run, don't walk, get to the hospital right now. But I guess if that were the case, we may, may not have gotten the monitor back. because <laughs> That's true. And they may not have woke, awakened. So, so those, those the ones where the, the that, that half where we were getting numbers in the 25 to 3,500 you know, parts per million of carbon dioxide. Those are ones that I'd look at. Also, if we were seeing really high bumps on the microfines during a cooking event, I'm wondering or not whether or not that person's range hood is working right, or whether they it's have a, a range hood, or if it's just filtering back into the indoor air. Right. Yeah. Which which is uh, which is a strategy. The recirculating yep. range hoods is a is a thing. They're not very good at actually removing those microfines. Sure. But but what do you do? The other thing is the houses that were. Do, had good indoor air quality without any kind of balanced ventilation, I'm assuming that it's just a very leaky house. A house, uh, so a brand new house uh, should be made to an air leakage of three air changes per hour at 50 pascals, and once again, 50 or less. pascals or less. Uh, and that is, that mimics a 22 and a half mile per hour wind blowing, blowing against your house. And at three air changes per hour, you're still getting enough air through the, the wall, the cracks, all of that stuff to have good indoor air quality, although that's arguable whether that's actually true. Um, but if your house is 15 or 20 air changes per hour, maybe the fact that you have good indoor air quality is that the wind is constantly blowing through your house and you're spending a lot to keep it comfortable on fuel. But so, wait, Chris, yeah. you're telling me it, for indoor air quality, I should have a really leaky house and everything will be fine. And it'll last forever. Yes. You'll just be <laughs> – right. Why do we have 200-year-old houses that aren't rotted out? Well, because there are 15 air changes per hour and there's enough wind blowing through to transport the moisture out of those assemblies. But then that air is coming, what goes out must come back in to equalize simple physics. And when it does, it's bringing that outdoor air across all the nastiness that exists in your walls, your basement, the crawl spaces, and then you get to breathe that instead. So that's not a good measure. No, no. So, uh, 
If we were to want to do a deeper dive on these houses that had good indoor air quality, we'd probably be looking at the air tightness and recommending making it tighter. And maybe after that, monitoring again and seeing whether or not um, a, uh, a a ventilation system is is called for. And and with the people who did participate, are they're they're getting feedback? I trust on this. Yes, I haven't gotten the data uh, ready for them, but everybody who participated is going to be getting an email uh, probably in the next month with uh, the out uh, with with the the uh, information that we got and the results and our recommendations moving forward. Wonderful. Well, the one thing that we have coming up too that kind of dovetails into this is the fact that Guy Payne, who is part of the uh, Sustainable Energy Outwork Network, he's one of the principals there, along with Peter Yost, the wing nut, self-proclaimed wing nut, <laughs> um, operating in Brattleboro, Vermont, um, basically a school that, and a program that helps builders be better at what they do as a builder and building science so that we get that at the same time. So right now we have Guy Payne on the line with us. Guy, welcome today to our show. Hello, Jim. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be a part of this show. This this was my first time, so it was great listening to the two of you go. Well, thank you. <laughs> and we hope that you don't get all nervous uh, with your public speaking here. You know, there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people hey, listening to you right now. But listen, I went through hair and makeup earlier, so I know I'm fine. <laughs> Fit for radio. <laughs> well, welcome, so welcome, guy. Glad. So glad you have ten thousand people linked on. There you go. <laughs> um, thank you so much. It's great to hear you on our show. Uh, I've known known guy for almost I don't know something on the eight to ten year range now. Yep. Um, and um, uh, why don't you start out just by giving us a, a bit of background about what Sion was, how it got started, and and what you guys have done uh, for your local building community, and then we'll get into the high performance building. A program that you guys have have developed. Sure. Um, years ago, back in 2011, I was working and at SEVCA, which is a community action agency, but I was also administering a grant uh, called Vermont Green, and so we had a lot of money to help people um, get green building and green any kind of green work. And now, wait a second, just to be clear, just to be clear, clear, guys, sorry to interrupt you, but that green was a, a, a word being used to make things more energy efficient. It's not about gardening. It's not about, you know, you know, managing your trees. It's just a term that, that ha- was used for a very long time to mean energy efficiency measures. It, it was. And frankly, for us, we avoid using that word green, but back then, that's how it was being used. Sure. Um, and, and so I had money to assist with, with training, and that was its main focus. Um, and then Hurricane Irene hit. Yes. And uh, the builders came to me. It was actually the weatherization supervisor at SEPCA who came to me and said, Guy, we understand energy efficiency, but we don't understand water and vapor ma- management. Yep. Yes. And that is a problem. So I happened to have met Peter Yost um, is one of the nationally recognized leaders in this area. Yes. And I said, uh, I linked Pete up with some of the builders, and he put together a two-day course on advancing green building and building science, the keys to managing moisture. Um, The builders at the time said this was by far the best course they had ever taken. Um, And we ran it a number of times. I think one time we ran it up in Burlington, uh, down in Greenfield, and then another one again in um, in Brattleboro. Um, 
And then the builders said, this was great, but what we need is a monthly opportunity for us to get together and hash out all of our building science issues. Sure, because you, you find new ones, as we experience, almost every day where good intentions have failed. And you need to understand, how do we fix this? How do we get a solution to avoid this problem in the future? How do we fix that? And how do we fix this? And how do we fix the <laughs> other? And, yeah. Yep. And so uh, from that, uh, CN started forming um, – with a side group called the Building Science Guild, uh, which was this monthly meeting of um, builders, architects, consultants. And for a while, it was facilitated by Peter Yost. Uh, so that was just a great grounding for us. Um, and then as the discussions went on, it, it became real clear that the builders around uh, don't know or 90% of the builders don't know this this stuff. No. So uh, what we began thinking is, okay, how do we put together – I mean, there isn't a certification program in the state of Vermont. We don't even know who's a builder in the state of Vermont. <laughs> and wait, and our show disclaimer says you have to get work done by a licensed professional. Where are you going to find uh, a, a licensed, licensed professional? Build- well, you got to go commercial in Vermont to get yes, a licensed know, building but- professional, but residential, <laughs> not, not, not extant. Started on that one. <laughs> um, so then, um, a number of the high-performance builders got together. Um, we decided, okay, what is at at a level one uh, level of cert- certification? Uh, what would that look like? And so, certainly, there was the they need to oh no some of the most very basic. But we're also thinking of how do you take newbies coming in and bringing them along. Sure. Um, And then the builders had said, listen, we want people who at least have the most basic understanding of building science before we want to hire them. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. Um, You know, with the realization that their carpenters probably don't know this stuff by themselves. Well, the one thing that's important there is it's so much harder that we have found to teach somebody who's already been in the business, who is set in their ways, yep. to say, this is not just a new trick, but this is what's going to make your, your projects last and be durable yep. and safe, as compared to somebody new who it's not an augmentation, it's more so part of the training. And it's like, oh, of course I should know this because this is part of the course, how to hammer that nail, but how to make sure I'm controlling vapor and insulating appropriately. And that's just why I think it's just really important to do it the way you guys are. Yeah, yeah. And... um so what we did is had that, and then we had a hands-on course called um, uh, Air, Water, and Thermal um, Continuous Control Layers. So that's very much a hands-on course. We have mock-ups, and we use the Career Center sure. um, to, to store our equipment. Then in addition, we have what we call an apprenticeship-style checklist of yes. carpenter competencies that need to be checked off. Mm -hmm. So so that's a full sort of length program. We we just finished um, the basics course, uh, basics of high-performance building. Uh, We had 24 people attending. Nice. Great. (laughs) Those are great numbers. And uh, we had a design team from Unity Homes, um, you know, across the river. Yep. Bensonwood. Uh, we had a draft person um, from Alan Benoit's um, 
Yep. Um, we have, I always call it, say it Alan Benoit, but that's just because it's <laughs> French, and the French never pronounce all their letters, so I never know how to pronounce it. Is it Anglicanized? Is it Barry? Or is it Barre? Right? Listen, someone from New York should not try. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a New York accent. What are you talking about? <laughs> hey, hey, guy, one thing real quick. We're coming up on our second break, yep. and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, but also how Sion is expanding their efforts and how we can hopefully get this to yep. go along with state measures as far as some of the training and requirements. It, it, initiatives that are here. So, yeah, we wanted to, um, to, to just get a bit of an idea. There's a lot of stuff going on in the state right now as far as – uh, a lot of federal money coming in for, for, from the pandemic money, um, and there's a lot of initiatives, uh, both that were backed by legislation and also things that the state is doing um, just based on general fund money that, that, that they're getting. Um, and uh, some of it's been disappointing, like the registry didn't get get uh, put through, which, which is uh, hurting us all as a state in our opinion. Um, but um, can you talk us a little bit through about the, the, the high-performance program that you guys have put together uh, you said you just had a a, a class uh, with 23 24 24 builders a, a, a two dozen builders which is which is amazing um uh, so so lead us a little on to uh, uh, what you guys are are thinking about expansion and uh, how the initiatives in the state might help that okay um the expansion what we're looking at uh right right now is saying this is such a great to us, it's a great course, a great program. How do we, how we, how do we deploy this throughout the state? And so we're going to need instructors. Um, so what Peter is going to do, and Peter Yost is retiring, so and and moving to um, Durham, New Hampshire. Hmm. Trader. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Family has a big pull. <laughs> of course, of course. And I don't mean that, Peter, if you're listening. I, I certainly I, don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, what we want to do is uh, have a train-the-trainer uh, program so that folks like you, um, Michael Goatneck, um, over in Norwich, um, maybe some folks in the western part of the state, I don't know whether Alan will, will want, to go through the program that we have, um, look at the slides, we can use it as sort of guidelines, make sure that the content is the same. Um, the content in um, the basics course, uh, there are two half days. One of them is uh, Think Like Air, Think Like Water, <laughs> which yeah. is basically focusing on those two aspects. Um sure. Heat transfer, moisture, um, all the mitigation efforts, uh, perm rates, um, number of things. And then we look at the house. Uh, the second uh, part of that uh, first day is looking at the big picture, the overall house as a system. So right. we're looking at the foundation. But, Guy, you know, listen, I can, I can, I hear the arguments all the time. I've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years. Yep. My father, my mother, they were in the business. They taught me how to do this. Why do I need this? This isn't important. Look, I got this beautiful house I built. It's to code, and it's just going to be perfect. Why do I need this information? Well, the information, new products are coming out, and what we're finding, as you, you know, that given the emphasis on um, 
energy efficiency. Sure. Um, what we're doing is we're buttoning up houses. And what you can't do is you cannot encourage energy efficiency if you don't treat moisture management with the same equal intensity. Exactly. Definitely. Um, one of the things that we're finding is that the um, the owners, not the owners, the members of Sion, meaning the owners, they are now saying to their staff, you have to get this stuff. You have to learn this this stuff. Yep, great. So, um, you know, but again, it's, you know, the one disappointing is that there was not one individual who attended the class who was who was a non-Seon member. Ah. Okay. Uh, got to get a broader not, tent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that that's a piece. And I think part of it is saying we need to work with the public for them to un- understand. They don't need to understand building science. What they need to understand is tell me how you maintain your understanding of best practices. What's the last time you've been to a training program or a conference? What are the documents that you use? What are the resources that you use? These are the kinds of questions I think homeowners need to begin asking. Def- um, definitely. You know, you, you queued up my soapbox a little bit. Because here, here's, my, here's my concern here, uh, Guy, is the fact that, yes, this magic money freshly printed has been sent to the state to be invested. But a lot of people just want to spend it on something that makes the headlines, and that concerns me. They want to solve what they perceive as the immediate problem and say, we got to win here. My concern is whether it's the middle-income housing initiative, whether it's some of the low-income housing, affordable housing, whatever. Workforce housing. Workforce yep. housing, and trying yep. to achieve these things without the proper dynamics in place. We are going to be putting in place a, a unit or a house that from day one starts to fail but is not normally seen until several years or, yeah. uh, down the road. And then we have sick people, sick buildings, and an investment that has to be – it wasn't an investment. They spent money. Now you're going to have to reinvest the tear down. A bad investment. A bad investment. <laughs> yeah. Health problems right. and everything else are going to have to be paid for. And so my biggest concern is we have to have that seed time and harvest type of investment where we – we take a step back. We get people like yourself and Peter and others to be able to communicate appropriate. Like if we're investing this money, is it going to last five years from now, ten years from now? If we get it right at the at the forefront, then yes, the ultimate harvest will be something that we can be happy with. Otherwise, I think we're going to have buyer's remorse here, and people are just not looking at that that equation right now yep. appropriately. Yep. Um, and my other concern is, given the amount of money that is coming in. How much control do we have of those coming from out of state? Mm-hmm. It's like a slow motion disaster. You know, uh, gr- growing you know, up in California and it's growing. Like they see money that's available, so folks will move move here in terms of doing in terms of work. And I'm I'm also worried about that. Well, and, and, and so, so we are looking at some level of qualification. Yes. Yes. And um, you know that's what we're trying to do. Um, but yeah, it it's. It's not an easy sell. No, no, and, and seeing some of these disaster areas, that, you know, like in the, where you have hurricanes yearly in the South, usually in in Florida, Louisiana, in California, we have earthquakes, wildfires, and other disasters, tornadoes, and then all of a sudden you get a lot of federal money 
that is injected and you get immediate building um, solutions apparently that Hurricane Andrew back in the day was um, bad building, no code, and it was rebuilding in some cases where they just got quick money, threw things up, and then all of a sudden when the, when Hurricane Andrew came through, it identified and exposed all the problems. That's my yeah, concern yeah. here. We don't have a fast-moving disaster. We have a slow-moving situation where the housing needs are so elevated, the builders are few, and, and people from out of state, their money's here. They're going to be drawn, just like you said, you put it perfectly, is they're going to be drawn from out of state. They don't have to be licensed. They don't have to be even registered. They and They don't, don't need to have insurance. And they don't have to be trained. <laughs> yeah, they're going to yeah. get access I mean, to this. There is, you know, we are called the lawless state. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it's like there are reasons for, for that. Sure. Um, but, you know, the, with, with some of it was in, interesting. Um, the... Uh, Last Wednesday, we had our Building Science Guild, and they were all the questions from the class that were to be asked of their bosses. Yes. <laughs> and so one was about uh, SIPs, and it was actually an owner who was involved with, uh, do I really want to go with, with the SIP because of what I have seen in terms of some of the degeneration? And, you know, Pete was there, and he was strongly in favor of SIPs, but for him, it's like, man, you have to bring your A-game yep. <laughs> to this, this work. You've you can build to... with plutonium, but you must be very careful about how you make sure the plutonium is not going to ruin everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, he was in favor of it, but it's like you've got to make, make sure that you're coming well prepared to do the, um, the adhesives, the taping, all the stuff that is required in making the SIPs work the way they're supposed to. Yeah, sure. yeah. And uh, one of the things that we're moving towards and, and uh, is, is we're on the cusp of a revolution in insulation, right? Mm-hmm. We're on the cusp of being able to move away from plasticized insulation. Yep. It's probably going to take us a good 10, 15, maybe 20 years to actually get rid of plasticized insulation from our buildings. So... Up until we get there, SIPs absolutely, whether it's polyiso or EPS or XPS, sandwiched between OSB as a building system, you got to know what you're doing. It's not a simple just put it up and walk away like you're saying. But as we're moving in towards this new future with um, insulation types that when you put them in a field, turn back into dirt. Right, the total cycle of not trying to have plastic everywhere we turn around is something that we're going to have to, if not teach, at least prime the people that we're teaching that this is yeah. coming, so yeah. they can keep their eyes open for it. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know one of the things you were talking about is, is where do we go from here? And, and part of it is for us to move this very basic stuff that we're doing around the state. But now the other question is. So where do we go from here? Yep. What's the next level of learning? And sure. Just just what you were re- referring to, Chris. Um, what are we thinking of in terms of the ten, next ten, ten years? Yep. Um, and so that's that's also on our ra- radar screen. But right now, the biggest problem is we don't even have 
we're not deploying the most basic of the information. Well, since it's not required in the state, Guy, um, and, <laughs> yeah. and yet there are yeah. plenty of excellent builders who do want to know more, and you've seen some of that. But if, if yeah. there's a builder listening to the show or somebody who knows a builder or they have somebody they're going to be hiring to be a builder, they want to make sure they know before they spend their money with them, how sure. would one of these builders or people interested in your program be able to take part? And what the, what's the cost structure? Well, what we've been able to do um, with um – the basics of high-performance building, which, again, are two half-day uh, classes. And we may expand that, but that's down the road. Um, that course is $475, but we've gotten some grant money from various uh, locations, so nice. we've subsidized it of the tuition so that a non-SEON member only has to pay $250. Nice. And I did want to call out one of those. I know one of them. Isn't that the High Meadows Fund? Yep. High yeah. Meadows Fund helped us as well yes, as I remember that. The, um, one of the anonymous donors from the from Vermont Community Foundation. Oh, Wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. They, um, um, and then there was one other source that is $1,500. But that's not going to carry as far. Yeah. So we need greater infusion because it's still – for builders, for them, it's still considered a cost. Right. It's not an. It's not an investment. It's not an added. It reminds me of when uh, I was first working with Jim, and uh, we were talking about how insulation was not a main item in the building list, yeah, but was a- was an addendum. <laughs> right. Okay. So go to addendum G, and there we're talking about air tightness and insulation. Yeah, throw that fluffy stuff in there, and everything's fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we and we need to move that into the main discussion. Right. Yeah. And yep. and with, with all of our builders um, and, and how m- moisture and, and heat move in a building are not the same uh, as how air moves. It's, it's actually um, sometimes very independent of that. Um, it reminds me just very quickly of that story that, that Ward Smith, I, I've told this a number of times, he was on a build site, a very uh, Turtle Creek builders down in Waitsfield, uh, now retired, uh, was working on a project, and the guy, uh, there was a worker who was putting on shingles on a roof, and he said to the guy, what are you doing? And he said, what do you mean what I'm doing? I'm putting shingles on the roof. He said, no, what are you doing? He said, I'm putting shingles on the roof. He said, no, you are creating a barrier for bulk water. Think like water. Yes. Right. And yep. unless you have been, in, you know, initiated into the the priesthood of how water works, yep. you're not going to do it right. And we see it. We've been on Too buildings, often. buildings where where the you know the flashing is not tall enough, or it dumps water well, we, into we the were, wall. We were there yesterday, yeah. and they didn't have the scuppers or kickouts where one piece of geometry of the building, like an offset garage, um, hits the side of the main house, and then water comes down the garage roof, gets hits the siding first on the main house, and then gets behind the siding, rots it out. Yep. Carpenter ants love it. And yeah, this is something. Oh, maybe it's a conspiracy by the comp- carpenter ants. There you ants. go. It's, it's a carpenter ants union. But uh, you know, a simple little inexpensive piece of metal pushing that water away from that, that wall of the main house would solve that problem, prevent it from happening in the future. So simple yep. things like this are so important. We are oh, coming... Yeah. Guy, we are coming up on the end of the show, but I think it's very important for How do people get in touch exactly. with you? Exactly. What, what's your phone number? What's your website? If you can provide us with that information. Sure. I mean, the website is is admin, A-D-M-I-N, at SEON, S-E-O-N, stands for Sustainable Energy Outreach Network, 
dot info, I-N-F-O. Okay. Um, and my phone number is 802-376-9262. Fantastic. Well, Guy, Guy Payne from the Sustainable Energy Outward Network, Outreach no. Network. <laughs> Say that See times, yeah, yeah, there you go. Don't uh, worry, Chris. It still takes me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I try to slow down when I say it so I get all the See, words I'm out sure. without tripping over them. Thank you so much for taking time out of your, you, sa- your, your Saturday to, okay. to be with us. My, my pleasure. Hello. Well, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Well, Chris, here we are. Yep, last and, 30 and seconds season. of the second season. Are there um, playoffs, though? Are we going to go into the playoff round? I, I think I, well, I, I haven't heard whether we have a, a, a season set up for next year, but uh, next fall. But I yep. I believe we're, we're on the schedule for that. Um, I did want to point out the Better Building by Design Conference. If you're interested in building science, a guy – uh, we'll be there. I'll be there. Jim will be there. Um, uh, you're going to be able to interact with a lot of people who are on all over the scale of never heard about building science before to be building science experts. You're going to learn, go onto the exhi- exhibition floor and see all kinds of interesting products and learn about how they uh, together work to make a building better. That's the name. If you, if, you want, well, if you want to find out that there are even geekier energy people <laughs> than us, <laughs> you can go there. <laughs> I, 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 that, that, I was waiting for that sentence. Um, so uh, it, it, that is uh, April uh, 27th and 28th. That's uh, a Wednesday and a Thursday in the end of April. And if you're interested in meeting us and, and hanging out, we'd love to, to see. We're not going to have a booth or a table. We're just going to be around. Um, but we'd love to uh, interact with people and um, uh, it's a great opportunity for builders and architects and other people to learn about that type of thing. Uh, it has been an amazing uh, second season. I want to thank very you quick. guys yeah. all very much uh, for being loyal listeners and until next season, this is Chris West and this is Jim Bradley. Have a great year. House Calls Vermont today has been brought to you by R.K. Miles, a third-generation family-owned business, proud to be your local building material supplier. Find a location near you at rkmiles.com. By Poly Construction, for over 30 years known for anything construction, big or small jobs, one call does it all. P-O-L-L-I construction.com. By Ken Libby of the Stowe Area Realty Group at Keller Williams Stowe, your trusted advisor, 802-793-2002. By Curtis Lumber with two locations in Vermont, Williston and Burlington. Request a quote for your next project online at curtislumber.com. Also by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber with locations in St. Albans, Enosburg, Swanton, Derby, and Middlesex. And Shamrock Painting. That's right, Shamrock Painting. Painting and custom wood finishing. Shamrockpainting.com. By Matt Clark's Northern Basement Systems for all things basementy. NorthernNEFoundations.com. And by Wytha Windows, high-performance passive house windows and doors. Online at WYTHEWindows.com. House Calls Vermont, WDEV, FM and AM.